Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hello, bed crimers. Hope you guys are all doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Let me just ask that if you guys enjoy this video and you learn anything from it, please smash that like button, subscribe to the channel, leave me a comment. Now, let's get started. Ryan Koberger is the one and only suspect in the crime committed against Kaylee Gonsalves, Ethan Chapin, Zana Cornado, and Madison Mogan. The four students are believed to have been harmed on November 13, 2022, with a K-bar and its leather sheath, which was found on Mogan's bed next to her body, was key in leading the authorities to Koberger. Single-source DNA on the sheath's snap was traced to the son of Brian's father, Michael. Michael Koberger only has one male child, and that's Brian. On the day of the crime, Brian Koberger, or BK, made some rather long drives to other areas in Idaho and in Washington, and for several days in mid-December, he drove with his father from his home in Pullman, Washington, to the family home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, a drive that took him clear across the United States. For now, BK sits in an isolated jail cell, awaiting his preliminary hearing on June 26th. No doubt he's spending time with his court-appointed attorney, Ann Taylor, and I would imagine he's also receiving calls from his parents to break the monotony. We also know that a lady from Kentucky has been sending him letters in which she's declared him her perfect man. While an eyewitness, Dylan M., saw the perpetrator in the home on the night of the crime, his face was partially masked, so that's not a hundred percent in terms of Dylan being able to look at Brian Koberger's face and say, yes, he's the guy. But the biggest problem for the prosecution in this case, at least so far, is that the investigators haven't found the clothing worn during the commission of the crime, nor have they found the weapon, and that would be the K-bar that fits in the leather sheath. And while anything is possible, it doesn't seem likely that the investigators will be able to find the weapon. I say this because of all the driving to out-of-the-way places BK made after the crime. Based on cellular data showing where BK's cell phone was on November 13th, along with surveillance footage of a white Elantra, the same car BK drives, we know that the suspect made a lot of out-of-the-way drives at various hours of that day. We also know that BK's cell phone suddenly went off the network between 2.47 a.m. and 4.48 a.m., and it was during that period that the four students were so viciously attacked. The route Koberger's car and phone were shown traveling back from Idaho to Pullman, Washington, was not the most direct. Had he gone by the highway, he would have been home in about 15 minutes. Instead, BK drove a 50-minute drive in the dark on back roads. Then, on that same day, at some point starting after noon, Koberger drove from Pullman to Clarkston, Washington, 
a drive of about 42 miles, taking roughly 42 minutes. Then, on that same day in the evening, between 5.32 p.m. and 5.36 p.m., BK's cell phone used cell towers that provide coverage to Johnson, Idaho. The drive from Clarkston, Washington to Johnson, Idaho takes, on average, 1 hour and 34 minutes, and it cuts through the Nez Perce Reservation. Along the route, there are two rivers, the Snake River and the Clearwater River, and several creeks. In addition, the Dayo and Warshak Reservoirs are also nearby. It is fascinating to note that between 5.36 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. on November 13th, the day of the crime, Brian Koberger's cell phone was once again off the network, which was either due to him turning the phone off, putting it in airplane mode, or him being somewhere without a connection to the network. This meant that his whereabouts, at least based on his phone's whereabouts, during that period are impossible to track. And it doesn't sound like any surveillance cameras captured the white Elantra during this three-hour period. The probable cause arrest affidavit specify where Koberger was when his phone reappeared on the network at 8.30 p.m. You may recall that the last time Brian Koberger's phone went off the network on this day. Zanna, Ethan, Maddie, and Kaylee were savagely attacked. So this second disappearance from the network between 5.36 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. points to the suspect likely being up to something nefarious once again. Is this when and where he hid these items? What is upsetting is that if you look at a map, you'll see that the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest is not far from Johnson, Idaho, where Koberger's phone last pinged at 5.36 p.m. According to its website, this national forest features rugged canyons, moist cedar forests, and rolling uplands. The website says, and I quote, The Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest is best known for its wild character. Nearly half of the forest is designated wilderness. They also sport three rivers popular with thrill-seeking floaters, the Selway, the Loxa, and the Salmon, end quote. Guess how many acres are in this forest? Four million. This forest is stunning, and it's also vast. If we look at pictures of it, I don't think it would be hard to ditch a weapon and clothing there and to do it without being seen, especially if you go there after 5.36 p.m. on November 13th. The sun set at approximately 5.27 p.m. that day. There are remote trails, bodies of water, mountains, cliffs, and plenty of places where you could quickly veer off a trail, dig a hole, 
bury these items, maybe push a rock over them. You could conversely toss them off a mountain. You could even burn the clothes, I suppose, although there are times when campfires and stoves are limited and when fires are strictly prohibited. Here's the other thing. There are thousands of abandoned mines in Idaho, and guess where most of them are? Take a look at this map. See all the purple? Those are all the mines, and so many of them are on the Nez Perce Reservation and near the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest. A car drive from Johnson, Idaho, down to Syringa, Idaho, near the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest, takes on average one hour and 22 minutes. Without knowing where Koberger's phone was when it showed back up on the network, it's hard to know if he was back in Pullman, Washington by then. If it showed back up at Johnson, Idaho at 8.30 p.m., it's entirely possible that Koberger drove to the National Forest, spent a little bit of time hiding or destroying the evidence, and then driving back to Johnson. And the more I think about it, I think that's where he disposed of the clothing and the K-bar. If BK is the perpetrator, he must have been exhausted by this point in the day. It would mean he was up from 2.42 a.m. until 5.30 a.m., then perhaps slept from 5.30 a.m. until 8.30 a.m. or so. His phone and car show back up in the King Road neighborhood in Moscow at 9.12 a.m. Then he goes back to Pullman, Washington, and then around noon or so, his phone is seen pinging off cell towers in Lewiston, Idaho, and Clarkston, Washington, up until 1 p.m. Then he's on the move again, and his phone pings in Johnson, Idaho, at 5.32 p.m. Then, as I just said, he goes off the network at 5.36 p.m. until 8.30 p.m. I don't know about you, but I'd be exhausted if I did what Koberger is accused of, slept for only several hours, and then been driving all these rather long routes to remote areas on the same day. The only way someone could pull all this off was by fueling on coffee, perhaps the adrenaline rush fulfilling a dark fantasy. Could that fuel him the whole day? Who knows? Was he using some sort of medication to keep him awake? I wanted to see what the experts had to say about how not having the weapon used in the crime would affect the prosecution's case against suspect Brian Koberger. I found an article on Newsweek.com, which I'll share a link to in the description, and it included the opinions of several law enforcement, legal, and forensic experts about this topic. By the way, whenever these people use the K-word for the weapon— I'm going to simply refer to it as the weapon. Joseph Giacolone, an adjunct professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, as well as a retired New York Police Department sergeant. He said this, and I quote, The weapon would be nice to have, but not necessary. For me, the most important evidence was what they found in his apartment and the vehicle. We know they've recovered human hair and an animal hair. If they come back to the victims 
and or the dog, that will be a home run for the prosecution. If they have that, I don't care if they never find the weapon. End quote. Duncan Levin, a former federal prosecutor and managing partner of Levin & Associates, saw great value in the investigators having a part of the weapon, meaning the leather sheath found on Maddie Mogan's bed. Here's what Levin said, and I quote, The weapon itself would undoubtedly help the prosecution's case, but there is so much evidence already in this case, it's likely not to matter at all. The sheath is part of the weapon, and it bears what prosecutors allege to be a DNA match with Koberger. That is much stronger crime scene evidence than investigators usually are able to get. Coupled with the overwhelming forensic, cell phone, and video evidence, the missing weapon is probably not going to affect things. End quote. Joseph Scott Morgan, a distinguished scholar of applied forensics at Jacksonville State University and the host of the Body Bags podcast, said this, and I quote, In my opinion, the absence of the weapon will not make or break the case. Unlike a firearm, there are no ballistic matches for edged weapons. With that said, a forensic pathologist could examine the weapon and make a determination that it is within a reasonable scientific certainty that a weapon, such as the K-bar, could have generated these injuries. If the weapon is found, finding DNA from a victim on its surface would be significant. There is an outside possibility that the weapon may have left trace elements of metal fragments within the wound tracks. If those fragments could be recovered and subjected to metallurgical testing, they could be compared to chemical composition associated with K-bar weapons. End quote. Niyama Ramani, a former federal prosecutor, said this, The weapon will be helpful if law enforcement can find it, but it's not a deal-breaker. They're probably looking for it in bodies of water along Koberger's path of travel back to Washington after the blank. The sheath is good evidence, but Koberger's defense team will argue that it's only a single source of DNA and that it was either transferred or planted. With a crime scene that bloody, you would expect more DNA. And the house was reportedly a party house, so there is likely a lot of DNA from other people the defense will raise. End quote. I'm curious to know what you guys think. Will the investigators find the weapon? If not, do you think jurors will have a hard time believing Brian Koberger is the person who inflicted the injuries on the students? Let me know in the comments. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, smash that like button, leave me a comment, subscribe. Hey, and if you want to support the channel, you can do a membership, and I'll see you next time.